This is a recording of the Samia Yakub teleconference with the Atlantic Council of the U.S. on Tuesday, July 28, 2015 at 8 a.m. Central Time. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Uh, this is Samia Yakub with the Atlantic Council of the Hariri Center. Um, I'm joined by Ambassador uh, Francis Ricciardoni, who is Vice President here at the Atlantic Council and Director of the Hariri Center and uh, Frederick Hoff, Ambassador Frederick Hoff, um, Senior Fellow here focusing on Syria. Um, we um, just wanted, I just wanted to give you an explanation of the call, how it will, will go. Um, if you all could mute your line, uh, it sounds like there's quite a few people joining, so that would be uh, helpful just to minimize the feedback. Um, we have members of the press, we have our, um, our, our Atlantic Council members joining today. Um, we will be speaking on the record. Um, we'll begin with 15 minutes opening remarks and 15 minutes of Q&A. If there are further questions, we can certainly accommodate um, for anyone who wants to stay on the line. Um, we'll start with Ambassador Hoff, um, speaking about um, the safe zones that have um, apparently been agreed and um, also the, the developments of, of the, the latest agreement on, on the use of bases um, against ISIS in, in Syria. So I will pass the floor on to him, and he'll speak for about seven minutes. And, and go from there. Thank you, Sam, and hi to, hi to everybody. Uh, what I'm going to try to do very briefly is uh, summarize uh, what we know, what we don't know, and uh, what it all may mean. Uh, Washington and Ankara have agreed, at least in principle, to protect a zone in northern Syria stretching from Jarabla, a border town on the Euphrates River, some 68 miles west to the vicinity of Azaz and then an unspecified distance south into Aleppo province, perhaps as far south as the Syrian town is Al-Bab. Uh, just to give a sense of distances, Al-Bab is about, oh, roughly 23 miles south of Turkmen. The city of Aleppo, which seems not to be within the protective zone under consideration, is about 30 miles south of Turkey. The stated purpose of the initiative is to exclude ISIS from the Turkey-Syria border along this 68-mile stretch and from a protected zone or a safe zone, uh, dimensions yet to be decided inside Syria. Uh, within this safe zone, nationalist Syrian rebels being trained and equipped to fight ISIS would be protected by coalition aircraft, perhaps supplemented by Turkish artillery. The idea is to create a safe haven for these nationalist rebel units uh, so that they receive newly trained and equipped personnel from Turkey, defend against ISIS ground operations, and serve as a ground combat component against ISIS in conjunction with coalition aircraft. Now, discussions, my understanding is that discussions between Washington and Ankara about creating an anti-ISIS safe zone have been going on episodically for many months. Obviously, Washington has been seeking Ankara's full and enthusiastic support for the war against ISIS. Coalition use of the air base at Incirlik has been a major issue. Enhanced Turkish efforts at sealing the poorest border with Syria has been a major issue. And likewise, the creation of a safe zone in Aleppo province where ISIS could be excluded and an inside Syria connection to the train and equip program has been a major issue. I understand that in late 2014, an agreement was almost reached between uh, Ankara and Washington on this uh, safe zone issue. 
My understanding is that it centered on uh, two Turkish demands, <coughs> United States to Marathonal no-fly zone, and that the city of Aleppo be included within that zone. Uh, Turkey's concern was that Assad regime barrel bombing of civilian areas would not only kill lots of people, but send additional streams of refugees in the direction of Turkey. Washington's concern, especially in light of the then ongoing nuclear discussions with Iran, was to keep the focus on ISIS and avoid direct confrontation with Iran's clients, the Assad regime. There were also concerns in the Pentagon that a formal no-fly zone would necessitate a massive air campaign aimed at neutralizing Syria's large and overlapping air defense network. Now, it appears that these differences have been bridged. Certainly, Turkey's enhanced concerns with ISIS have played a role. Perhaps Turkey also sees agreement with Washington for stepped-up operations against the PKK in Iraq and within Turkey. Ankara may also see this agreement as a way to water down or mitigate Washington's current dependence on the Kurdish PYD in Syria to provide ground forces to fight ISIS. What may also be in play, however, is a tacit understanding between the two sides that the creation of this safe zone and an accompanying aerial exclusion zone would have the effect of sharply reducing the barrel bombing of Syrian civilians by the Assad regime air force. Obviously, the United States would take the lead in keeping non-coalition air assets out of the safe zone. If, for example, al-Bab is within the safe zone, then the Assad regime will be denied a favorite target for barrel bombs. And an aerial exclusion zone could pro would probably cover an expanse of Syrian airspace well beyond the safe zone itself, because coalition aircraft would not want to wait for hostile aircraft to enter the safe zone before reacting. What I'm trying to say is that this Washington Ankara initiative may be far more than a chapter in the ground war against ISIS. Both sides know that every barrel bomb dropped by the Assad regime is a victory for ISIS. Every such bomb is a boost to ISIS recruitment both within Syria and around the world. What Washington and Ankara may have found is a formula to cut off a major part of the barrel bombing, but to do so in the context of protecting an area from which anti-ISIS operations would be launched. Although I have no idea how far beyond the safe zone an aerial exclusion zone would extend, I would note that Aleppo is just a few miles south of the safe zone under discussion, and the city of Idlib is only 35 miles from Aleppo. So to sum up, I'm not, I'm not totally sure that this is an entirely done deal. But if it is, it seems to me it could be much more than a launching pad for Syrian rebels helping us fight ISIS. Potentially, it's a major step toward protecting Syrian civilians, which is a sine qua non not only for the fight against ISIS, but for setting the stage for a negotiated political transition in Syria.
Thanks. Okay, I'll pass the floor on to Ambassador uh, Franquicio Doni, um, here, uh, former U.S. Ambassador to Turkey, and for joining the Atlantic Council last year. I'm going to pick up where from Fred's comments that what we're watching here could well be far more than just another chapter in the ground war against ISIS. Um, what is also behind this is a lot of uh, powerful political dynamics within Turkey, which is a, a fully functioning state of law and democracy that just went through hugely important elections only last month, in which really constitutional issues, identity issues were in the forefront, whether they have a strong presidential system, but also the what foreigners typically call the Kurdish issue was also in the forefront of those elections. And uh, the definitions of citizenship and the role of uh, uh, the Kurdish identity within Turkish citizenship was all in play. Uh, a new government hasn't yet been formed, and against this context, people, many Turkish friends, see uh, a reversion to the old debates and the use, the exploitation of nationalism, ethnocentric nationalism in the Turkish political context. All of that plays into the government's national security decision on what to do about the PKK, for one, and then to deal with the other uh, Kurds in the region, how to work with the uh, Kurds in Syria in particular in this case. What is really interesting for me is that there seems to be another evolution of Turkish thinking, national security thinking with respect to the Kurds. It is not a new thing for Turkish armed forces to hit back hard and the PKK engages in some outrage. It is not new at all for uh, PKK outrages to actually rally international support for the Turkish armed forces in so doing, because the United States, European Union, others have declared the PKK a terrorist group. Heretofore, however, Turkey has not taken the same outlook toward the PYD in Syria as the United States and other Western allies have. We have all differentiated quite explicitly and overtly the PYD from the PKK. The one is operating against the Turkish state and is, an, we consider, an international terrorist group, and, and it's quite legitimate for Turkey to defend itself against them, attack their bases in Iraq, etc. The other, the PYD, has explicitly said they have no quarrel with the Turkish state and has explicitly, long ago, uh, taken on ISIS and therefore uh, aligned its interests quite explicitly as a matter of policy with those of the Western coalition. It sounds to me as if the Turks have now come to make that same distinction. As a matter of fact, uh, Saleh Muslim has, the PYD spokesperson, political uh, spokesperson, has visited Turkey quite overtly, has met with the high Turkish officials. So in a de facto sense, the Turkish government has recognized this distinction as well. These are not clandestine meetings uh, with, as the Turkish government has been having contact with the imprisoned PKK leader, Erdogan. This was something quite different. But it sounds as if the Turkish government... <laughs>
that the Kurds of Syria, although closely aligned with the PKK, in, in the case of the PYD, can be dealt with in a separate way. That is to say, accepted as uh, fellow combatants against ISIS, if not outright allies against ISIS. That's still a hypothesis that remains to be tested. There was a report last Friday that Turkish uh, forces had shelled uh, the Turkish government denied that. Who knows what the, the facts are in the fog and confusion of war, but one of the facts is that the Turkish government denied it. So at least they wish not to be perceived as attacking them. So all this is very interesting. The Turkish uh, uh, process, as they call it, without an adjective, just the process of negotiations with the PKK, clearly for the moment, at least for the moment, has, has broken down and is set aside. My own expectation is that that must resume at some point, uh, perhaps after another few rounds of uh, hitting back and forth between the PKK and the Turkish security forces. Uh, we'll see how that parallel uh, conflict plays out, even as the Turkish government seems to have aligned very strongly now with the coalition against ISIS, very much, I believe, to the, uh, to the benefit of, of that coalition. And some, I think, uh, both, ISIS, both uh, ISIS, certainly, has made a strategic mistake repeating uh, recently the first mistake it made a year ago when it took Turkish diplomats hostage, uh, setting up a course of antagonism that was papered over for a while, um, and now finally uh, won the enmity of the Turkish uh, state, which is a serious state with a serious national security apparatus, not only military but also intelligence and law enforcement. Um, just as PKK has made a mistake, I think, in setting aside the political process uh, albeit they may have done so in response to uh, political pressures from the Turkish government itself. Why not end it there? Okay. Um, so for, for anyone joining, um, that was Ambassador uh, Richard Doni. Um, we're now going to open the floor to questions. Um, and if you can just please mute your mic um, if you are not asking a question. Um, I think we'll open it to you now uh, for anyone who would like to join in. Um, I have a question. I'm Deb Amos with NPR. Uh, this uh, switch, change, has mostly been framed as a change for Turkey. I wanted to know what you thought the change in Washington was. Why have they um, come to terms with uh, an all-but-named no-fly zone in northern Syria? Uh, yeah, Deb, this is, uh, this is Fred. You know, I, I think I think Washington, I think the administration has certainly been intellectually seized with this problem uh, for quite some time. Uh, you know, the, the, the president, his advisors, are fully aware of the fact that uh, Assad's barrel bombing campaign in particular is a gift that keeps on giving to, uh, to ISIS. Uh, you know, I, I, I can only imagine that there's that there's movement now, uh, perhaps because the nuclear talks are are concluded. Uh, the president doesn't feel uh, constrained in that sense, and uh, you know, I suspect that's uh, you know that's a major reason why there's been a 
there's been a major initiative to uh, to come to closure with Ankara on that. Any follow-ups for me? No, that makes sense to me. Okay. All right, this is uh, Warren. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Uh, Warren, Stroh, Reuters. Uh, quick question for um, each of you, uh, Frank and Fred. Frank, um, do you have any sense that the U.S. might have been surprised or taken aback by the, the fact that uh, Turkey simultaneously hit the PKK while it was also uh, launching its first uh, real airstrike against ISIS? And, and for Fred, um, I want to make sure I understood you correctly. Is it your understanding from U.S. officials that trained and equipped rebels will be inserted into this exclusion zone and that they'll be protected by U.S. air power from any attack, whether it's Islamic State or um, Assad's regime? Thanks. Warren, this is Frank speaking. I can't say whether U.S. officials were taken aback, but certainly the Turkish government had... Uh, given no reason for anybody to be surprised. For a long time, uh, Turkish leaders, particularly President Erdogan, had been saying, had been lumping together all threats to the Turkish uh, state and uh, citing ISIS in, uh, along with the PKK. And of course, most recently, they've cited PKK, ISIS, and for that matter, the people who bombed my embassy when, when I was there uh, a couple of years ago, the DHKPC. Um, so they, at least for purposes of domestic political presentation, they're, uh, they're showing that uh, all of these are of a piece in terms of uh, national security threats, terrorist threats to the tranquility of the republic, the safety of the citizens. So I, I certainly didn't find that very surprising. I don't think they needed any kind of um, a pretext. That storyline that's coming out, I, I don't really credit. Yeah, hi, Warren. It's uh, it's Fred. Uh, uh, the answer to your question, bo both of your questions, I, I believe, is uh, is yes. Uh, first of all, I believe that uh, that uh, elements trained and equipped inside Turkey will be introduced into this zone, uh, where they will join uh, existing uh, nationalist units uh, that are already uh, uh, either in contact with ISIS or close to being in contact with ISIS. And yes, I believe that. Uh, that the United States, in conjunction with Turkey, uh, will be defending uh, this safe zone against all comers. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star key followed by your one key on your touchtone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order they are received. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the questioning queue, please press star two. And once again, to ask a question, that's star one. Our next question comes from Joyce Karam. Uh, yes, hi, thanks for doing this. Um, when you look at the map, this safe zone is very small. I mean, one or nine kilometers. What do you expect it to hold? How many refugees if they move in there? And what makes you think that Assad would actually not cross into uh, uh, this safe zone and make it actually very bloody for, for everyone there? Yeah, Joyce, this is uh, this is Fred. I'll I'll take a shot at that. The uh, the safe zone is indeed very small. Uh, I you know frankly I don't know whether resettlement of refugees from Turkey is going to be a major feature of this initiative. 
I honestly do not know. Uh, would would Assad would Assad test the safe zone or an aerial exclusion zone that goes beyond the safe zone? Uh, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, after all, there are reports that uh, that Al Bab would either be within the safe zone or or on the edges of the safe zone. And Al Bab has been a has been a favorite target uh, going back quite some time uh, for uh, for regime barrel bombs. Uh, you know, I would just say that that if a, if an aerial exclusion zone is in play here, if it goes beyond uh, the uh, the safe zone, you know, messages messages will have to be passed uh, to the Syrian regime as they have been in the past. Uh, and there has to be there has to be a willingness on the part of the United States to uh, to react decisively if uh, you know if our efforts at uh, let us say deconfliction uh, are not respected by the Syrian regime. Chris, I might add, this is Frank Richardoni speaking. Your your question points up the fact another difference in the Turkish perspective from that that many Americans have. For the Turks, the spillover of the Syrian civil war is not only a major national security problem, which has evolved to become even worse lately with ISIS clearly uh, jumping in and, and getting involved in terrorism in, inside Turkey, but also a massive humanitarian problem, and of course they're interrelated. So clearly they would love to see a time when all or most of those Syrian refugees will return to Syria. I, I don't see, for the reasons you just pointed out in your question, that this zone is going to accommodate any large number. It, at most, it could be something like a proof of concept, I suppose, for some few. Um, I, I don't imagine that many of those two million, in fact, came from that particular area, perhaps a few, but with Aleppo being outside, I think that's a major source of a lot of those refugees. So I can't imagine there are many who would wish to go back to a place that wasn't their homes, in, in fact, and especially if it, the safety itself remains to be uh, demonstrated. So it's an important factor, but I, I can't imagine it's going to be uh, the solution uh, or even a, a major step towards the solution of the refugee crisis. Perhaps we'll see if it, if it tests the possibility. Um, just, just to let everybody know, um, you know, we'll be staying on just a few more minutes after the after 9:30. So um, just just hang tight, and we'll get to your questions. Okay, we'll go ahead and take um, Howard Lafranchi. Mr. Lafranchi, please go ahead. You may have muted. Okay. Our next question comes from Anne Bernard. Anne, are you there? Ms. Bernard, please go ahead. Okay, our next question comes from Joe Parkinson. Hi, this is a question I suppose more for um, Ambassador Richard Oni. Uh, can you hear me? Am I okay? Yes. Yes, Joe, go ahead, loud and clear. 
Okay, great. Um, I suppose I'm wondering, in the context of, you know, now a conflict between the Turkish state and the PKK, what degree of confidence do you ascribe to this idea that the Turks will continue to differentiate between the PYD and the PKK, given the closeness uh, of the organization? And as a follow-on to that, uh, what reaction do you think the U.S. might have if the Turks do start striking the PYD, given that they're now um, close allies, and how do you anticipate the uh, the state? Do you anticipate the state zone to impact on that relationship to perhaps dilute U.S. cooperation with the PYD uh, to be supplemented by um, these rebel groups? Thank you, Joe. Um, I treat it as um, a, a hypothesis. Uh, rather than a, a strongly established fact. It remains to be demonstrated, but from what I see in the Turkish media that is close to the government, from what I see of, of what seem to be facts being reported uh, in the uh, open sources, it looks like they are, as a practical matter and, and increasingly as a rhetorical matter, drawing that distinction. That's hugely important, I think, for the success of the Allied effort against uh, ISIS and indeed in uh, seeing some sort of security emerge in that zone. Uh, going to the second part of your question, should the Turks uh, decide in fact to attack the local Kurdish forces inside Syria, it looks like that would lead to nowhere good. That would, that would uh, sort of dissolve the alliance, the coalition against ISIS and uh, certainly do nothing to strengthen the larger uh, opposition cohesion that we'd love to see form in general. So uh, I, I think you understand that, and that's implicit in your own question. Did I cover your, your three points there? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Our next question comes from Howard Lufranchi. Hi, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. yeah, okay, great, thanks. Uh, yeah, I guess my question is for uh, Fred. Um, you uh, mentioned, I wonder if you could expand on what you mentioned about this uh, potentially uh, leading back to, um, you know, uh, some sort of negotiated political settlement. And uh, this has been mentioned a little bit uh in sort of in the wake of reaching the nuclear deal, and I also wonder if you if you now see in, in the time that, that President Obama has left, uh, you know, is this has this um, been put back on his plate in the sense that he wants some sort of do you see him wanting some sort of uh, uh, not settlement but at least progress on Syria you know, before he leaves office? Uh, yeah, thanks, Howard. I you know I think the um I, my, my, my personal view is yes, the president uh, in his uh, 18 months or so remaining in the White House uh, definitely uh, wants to see some progress on Syria. I, you know, I think these, these reports uh, or these opinions to the effect that all he wants to do is, uh, is hand this uh, smoking ruin uh, to his uh, successor have been overstated because, because, in fact, in the course of 18 months, uh, things can get immeasurably worse in this uh, in this country if uh, if the likes of ISIS and uh, and the Assad regime uh, are allowed to uh, are allowed to pursue business as usual. 
my, you know, my sense is that any prospect, any prospect at all of a negotiated uh, political settlement is zero as long as these daily outrages, these daily atrocities, these daily abominations are taking place. I suspect that uh, I suspect that Syrians, uh, you know, along the full length of the political spectrum, would probably agree with that intellectually. Uh, that it's very, very, very difficult for uh, you know for Syrians themselves to take up serious discussions of uh, security arrangements and uh, you know accompanying uh, political compromises. Uh, as long as uh, you know barrel bombing and starvation sieges and these uh, and these other outrages are continuing, so I think uh, I think the president's concerned about that. I think the president is probably also concerned and rightfully so about uh, about his legacy in the context of civilian protection in Syria. Uh, this has been a uh, this has been a, a major challenge, and if I may say, a major uh, a major abomination. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, we're going to see the words "never again" uh, now applied to uh, now applied to Syria. We'll be taking a question from Anne Bernard and then Mina Al Arabi. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, hi, Fred. This is. Um uh, follow up to your earlier comments, and I'm sorry if I missed something. I had to put the call on hold for a minute, so tell me if I'm repeating. But, but you know, you sound, you know, surprisingly confident that that the Americans really are on board for for something akin to it, because of, of so stridently insistent that that's not what it is, that's not official. Um, and I'm just just curious, is that solid? Um, do you think they're going to back it up with the needed Support for for, for an infrastructure and governance inside, and sort of forcing the interim go back. And which which uh, insurgents are they talking about? Because seen and equipped is, you know, unless you're also talking about the CIA train and equip, which is also really not going to be the front either. Uh, yes, Anne. This is Fred. Uh, you came in a bit a bit broken up. So uh, you know, if I if I miss answering pieces of your question, please uh, please repeat it. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of something whose whose effects would look like a no fly zone, my own my own view is it's inevitable if the United States is serious about protecting. Uh, the safe zone uh, whose uh, whose dimensions are taking shape right now. Um, it's inevitable. Aerial aerial protection of this zone uh, will certainly be a requirement, and to defend this zone uh, from aerial penetration, it's going to require a a deconfliction scheme, an aerial exclusion zone that that, that goes beyond uh, this particular area. Yeah, so unless, you know, unless the United States and its coalition partners are, are willing to step aside so that the uh, Syrian helicopters can, uh, can conduct barrel bombing runs at, at will, uh, I, my, my own sense and my own, my own confidence, uh, 
stems, uh, stems from the fact that this stems from the likelihood that this will not be the case, uh, that the United States is serious about its responsibilities for defending this zone. In terms of further uh, uh, political ramifications, I do not know if there is an intent uh, to encourage, for example, the interim government uh, to move into Syria. There is uh, certainly an opportunity here. Uh, the president spoke last October at Andrew's Joint Base about uh, trying to establish moderate Syrian governance inside Syria so that legitimate government governance could be established and could spread to the rest of the country. Uh, we'll just have to see. I have, uh, I have heard nothing. In terms of uh, in terms of pertinent uh, political follow-up uh, to this, and then I was asking, which rebels are they going to be uh, inserting in there? When you say the trained and equipped, do you mean uh, the Pentagon program and the CIA program? And how would they be sure that that? I mean, there's no way I believe that only certain rebels could benefit from this. Anybody who's in the area is going to benefit, isn't that right? And doesn't that include groups that the United States doesn't want to see benefit? Uh, yes, I would think that, uh, I would think that uh, potentially any group in the area uh, could benefit, although I would hasten, I would hasten to add that uh, you know, Assad's barrel bombing campaign is directed uh, exclusively against civilians. Uh, barrel bombs are uh, are not uh, are not tactical air support uh, for uh, maneuver maneuver units. Uh, my my sense uh, when I'm talking when I'm talking about uh, uh, troops that would that would enter the zone from Turkey and link up with established units, I am talking about the uh, the Department of Defense train and equip program. And not Turkish troops, right? You weren't referring to Turkish. No, I'm not, not referring to Turkish troops. I mean, reports I've seen uh, to date indicate that, uh, indicate that Turkey, uh, Turkey may well uh, support operations uh, within this safe zone with, with artillery, but, uh, but no intention to insert uh, Turkish ground forces, uh, at least at this point. My reading is wrong. Some people have put that out there. Yeah. Okay, um, we'll take the next question from Mina El Um We may have uh, Fred, Fred step out uh, shortly, but um, please, please feel free to hang on uh, with questions if you, you'd like to, to pose them to, to Ambassador Richard Ernie. Thank you so much. Um, just a quick follow-up about how governance, so to speak, would be in a safe zone. I just wanted to ask about all the different programs that were done years ago, two, three years ago. The U.K. took part of it uh, and also the U.S. In terms of just helping local governance, do you think any of those programs are actually viable now to, to take over in those areas? And a follow-up to that, could we see a possible similar zone being created in the South um, with, of course, the support of the Jordanians? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is Fred. Uh, the United States, uh, the United States has expended uh, considerable resources in uh, technical assistance uh, to local councils and to uh, and to civil society organizations uh, throughout Syria. Uh, the main the main obstacle uh, to the functioning of these groups uh, has been the uh, the deliberate policy of the of the Assad regime. Uh, to really prevent them from taking root. I mean, this is the, this is, you know, quite, quite aside from, from general terror, this is the main strategic reason 
to the barrel bombing campaign uh, to make sure that uh, that local governance uh, cannot take root. So, the, so to the extent uh, that this safe zone and perhaps an area beyond the safe zone, an area that could incorporate uh, major population centers, is protected uh, from aerial assault. Uh, one can see uh, local local governance uh, doing its job much more effectively. I, I jump in and just do a little commercial here. I mean, you might be interested in this. Um, all of the questions we're discussing here today sort of beg the question of what are the strategic results we all want to see and how do these various tactical problems and issues and measures lead toward any sort of strategic result? And in fairness to the United States and to Turkey and all the other established states that are trying to make sense of the whole region, it, it's a really different world. It's not a Congress of Vienna world. Much. It, it, it's not even a Sykes-Picot world anymore. Um, we at the Atlantic Council have a process going on, a bipartisan one, under former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley, to examine the different aspects of it. And, Nina, your question goes right to one of them, about governance. We have committees under this task force looking at uh, the security issue, how to deal with Daesh, the, the role of religion, uh, what to do about refugees and, and how to find resilience in refugee communities that might go back in and, and establish some sort of governance, governance itself, and then finally economics. So we've got a whole series of programs on that, a lot of uh, people working on it. You're warmly welcome to participate. Um, let me just assure you that it's something we're focused on, how to work with civil society to regenerate some sort of um, uh, rule of law and order and security where people can conduct economic activity in their lives. And I would uh, put in a plug for my modest friend and colleague, Fred Hoff, who's uh, written a paper on a stability force under which such um, civil society regeneration can take place. That's great. Thank you so much for mentioning. Okay, the next question from Trudy Rubin. Hi, uh, thanks so much for doing this. And I, uh, I came in late, unfortunately, so forgive me if this <clears throat> uh, repeats something you've already dealt with. But um, do you see any sign whatsoever that after an Iran peace accord, assuming uh, it doesn't get side-railed, that, uh, derailed, uh, do you see any sign whatsoever that Iran is willing to contemplate uh, new negotiations that would move Assad out? Uh, or uh, does it simply look like their position would stay the same on retaining Assad, at least uh, for some time into the future? Uh, Trudy, hi, this is Fred. Uh, no, you've asked an original question here. This was not, uh, this was not covered earlier. Uh, my own sense, based on, uh, based on track two discussions uh, I've been doing for the past two years with senior Iranians, former officials, uh, the most recent of which were about a month ago, is that, uh, is that no, I don't, I don't see any evidence uh, that, uh, that Iran is increasingly disposed toward uh, facilitating 
a negotiated uh, solution to the Syrian crisis. On the contrary, I think uh, I think Iran and Hezbollah uh, have been engaged in uh, some very intensive consultations centering on the question of just how much of Assad Syria they will defend. Uh, you know, for, for Iran, a key consideration here is the political status of its, uh, of its ally and colleague, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, the Secretary General of, uh, of Hezbollah. Iran, Iran understands that uh, body bags uh, going back into Lebanon are not uh, are not a political asset for Nasrallah. Uh, Iran, I think, is not inclined uh, to send uh, Hezbollah guys out to reconquer Idlib or uh, or or other places or or to go fight uh, fight ISIS. So the the priority for Iran and Hezbollah right now is to uh, is to tighten their interior lines of defense and to decide just how much they're going to defend. But I'm seeing no evidence, none whatsoever, that Iran is interested in moving Bashar al-Assad off the stage. Uh, the Iranians consider him still to be essential uh, to their ability to use at least a piece of Syria to support uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Maybe, Fred, let me check with this because uh, I've left office more recently, a year ago now and have also been involved with some Iranians. To answer the specific question, you've answered the deeper question that Judy had, whether they'd ever contemplate uh, giving up their toehold and their equities there, and I, I quite agree. They, they want to clutch onto their influence and presence in Syria through uh, a hold on a Syrian regime, no question. But the Iranians, at least in my experience, are immensely subtle and uh, practical within their subtlety. And they, they always hint at willingness to do things. And, and both in the official conversations that I was sort of aware of before and the, the conversations I've been in now, they're, they're pretty explicit in saying, you know, uh, we know that in the long run, uh, Assad may not endure. But Syria has to endure. And we do have interests there. And uh, we can talk about how we uh, preserve our interests there, even as you Americans and others want to talk about how you preserve your interests there or establish them. And Assad isn't necessarily going to be part of that picture, but of course the Iranians say it's not for us to decide, they <laughs> allege. It's very much the Russian line. But So they suggest an openness to negotiations. My own guess is, like Fred, they're not really going to be serious about it, until they see that Assad is, in fact, going to go down or suffer or has gone down, and then they'll be prepared to talk more seriously about how to erect some substitute for him. I don't think they want to have a, a movement toward a, a democracy based on a majority, on a non-Shiite, non-Alawite majority there. So um, this will conclude our, our session. Um, thank you all for patiently taking part for the part of your morning. Um, please feel free to follow up with any questions via email. Um, we will aim to send you an audio and transcript before noon today. Um, thank you very much, and uh, have a nice day.